Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Do you have your Bible? Okay. Perfect. Uh, this morning, we're going to be all over the place. That sound good? We're going to look at the difference between salvation and entering into the presence of God and receiving all that God has for us. So, before we get started, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn more about you, to worship you, to focus our lives on you. I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would lead us and guide us through this study, to be your word spoken here this morning, not mine, that you would... Just meet each one of us right where we're at. You know what we're going through. You know our thoughts. That you would speak to us through your word. That you would speak to our hearts directly. It's in Jesus' mighty name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, after church yesterday, or last Sunday, a question came up about, can you be saved? And do you have to be all cleaned up to be saved and enter into the presence of God? And there's a difference between the two. Salvation is different than what we were talking about last week when we were in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 was talking about entering into the most holy place, that inner sanctuary where the presence of God was. And there's a difference between that and salvation. And so we're going to look at that today. So where we're going to start is in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. And yes, we'll be all over the place. We want to look at, again, what does it mean to be saved? And then, what does it mean to enter into the the presence of God or or to be in fellowship with God, to receive the promises of God, all of that. And they are two different things. So can we be saved... um, and still be have a mess in our lives? And the answer is yes. We can be saved at any point in our lives. We don't need to get all cleaned up to get saved. <clears throat> so we're going to start Romans chapter 10, verse 9. So Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that make sense? Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is God, you are saved. And that believing in your mind, that confessing with your mouth, part of it is that believing in your mind, right? I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that believing in your heart is evident of evidence of a changed life. I once lived a life this way that was a sinful life, that was a selfish life, that was all about me. 
<clears throat> and now I live a life that's different from that. That's the opposite of that. I live a life that is meant to serve God, to do His will, to allow His will to be done in my life. And so, when that happens, that is when you are saved, right? But you're not all cleaned up. You're not perfect. You're not free from all your sin. You never will be of this side of eternity. But that's what it means to be saved. So, the next place we're going to go is Luke chapter 23, verse 39. So Luke 23, 39. So Luke chapter 23 starting here in verse 39. This is at the crucifixion where Jesus died on the cross and there were two men crucified with with him, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, right there you read that this man confesses Jesus as God, believes that Jesus was an innocent man who was crucified on the cross. And right there you hear that Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. So he will be saved. But he didn't come down off the cross, this criminal, and get all cleaned up. He didn't, don't even see where he really asked for forgiveness for his sins. All he really did was confess that Jesus was God, right? And what happened? He was saved. <clears throat> and it may sound simple, but that's really what it takes. Your belief that Jesus is God and evidence of a changed life. So instead of joining in with the other criminal, with his, his buddy, they were believed to be revolutionaries. He doesn't do that. Um, he confesses that Jesus is God. And so these two men were revolutionaries, is what one of the gospel accounts calls them. Here, this man confesses that the crimes they committed were worthy of death. So whatever this man did was wrong, and he admits that. But he admits that Jesus wasn't. Now, this isn't to say that you get to live your life however you want, and at the very end, you can just ask, believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. The only time that this comes up in the scriptures is right here. And this is the only gospel account that tells this story, the gospel of Luke. The other gospels don't tell it. So I would tell you that God isn't making a point that you should live your life this way. In fact, God's making the opposite point, that you should live a life of receiving him and then living a life of serving him. And that's what this getting into the presence of God or into the most holy of places is. But there's a big difference between salvation and having fellowship with God and receiving all the God's, all of his promises and obeying his commands. There's a difference there. And for that, we're going to look um, a little harder into David's life. 
But before we get to David, King David, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. That's kind of where this question came up from last week's study. We were in Hebrews chapter 9. So we just want to look at that again before we get into the story of David. And the story of David, I think, better explains a lot of this. At least in my mind it does. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people committed in ignorance. I think that's important, in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So, while salvation was open to anyone, in the Old Testament just as it is in the New Testament, this entering into the presence of God, or maybe receiving all that God has or all of his promises, there was, um, it seemed to be uh, a division there, or a curtain there, or a separation there. It's not like what we have now, right? And why could they not? Why was that not kind of freely open? Because their sacrifices, their animal sacrifices only covered up their sins, didn't remove their sins. So while being saved, we have said in our life, if we want to enter into God's presence, the only way we can do that is when we ask Jesus into our lives, ask him to forgive us for our sins. He paid the penalty on the cross that removed our sins. And we can be washed white as snow. And when we can come into that time of fellowship with God, where we receive his promises, where we can come to him and ask him for the things that we need, and he'll grant them to us. And I'd say they're not just material things, and we'll get to that, but this presence of God. So what does that look like in our prayer lives? God, please forgive me for my sins. I think it's important to call out the specific sins you had in your life. And at that moment, you are washed clean, white as snow, right? And you are in the presence of God. And you can ask him for the promises that he's given, for help in life, for all those things. Does that kind of make sense? That there's a difference between salvation and coming into God's presence for a fullness of life. So, I think probably one of the best explanations for this is found in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 11. So this is the story of David. This is David and Goliath David, the boy who slayed the giant. Really, God was the one that killed Goliath, and David does give God the credit for it. But God used a boy, a shepherd boy, to defeat this mighty man of war. Then, through a series of events, years later, David becomes king. And through a long series of events, David becomes king. And through a testing of his faith um, and him relying on God and trusting that it was in God's timing. David had multiple opportunities in his lifetime, well, at least two opportunities in his lifetime to become king, to um, take out the man who was king, who was not a godly man, but was ruling over the nation of Israel. But both times David said, no, not in my timing, in God's timing. So here we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 
David has become king now, is ruling and reigning um, and has success in everything he does. Up until this point in David's life, David is known as a man after God's own heart. He's the only one in the Bible that referenced that way. Um, he is had known for, especially in his younger years, just being in close fellowship with God, always worshiping God and trusting in God and had amazing faith in God, right? There's no doubt that he is saved. We'll read one of his Psalms here when we get done with this story, um, Psalm 23, and I would say to you that that was written probably in David's early years. And at the end of that psalm, he makes it very clear that he is saved. So we'll talk about this more. <coughs> so Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year... When kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. They destroyed the Amorite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed her purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent a message. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army was getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. 
The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah in the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed (coughs) along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops get so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be a shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him Uriah the Hittite, was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back into the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When her period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So here we read that this mighty man of God, this man after God's own heart, This man who was clearly saved had a a salvation, a saving faith because he believed in Jesus, just the same as we do today. When in the Old Testament, when they believed in God, when they believed that God was the creator, they believed that the Messiah was coming, they believed in the Messiah, they were saved, right? Same as we are today. We believe the Messiah has already come, we are saved. So here we read this man was saved, but he goes on to do these awful things. He has this affair with a married woman. He's married himself. Then, instead of confessing his sins there, he tries to hide them, and he murders her husband. He tries to get her husband to come home and sleep with her so he'll think that it's his child, and when that doesn't work, he murders her husband, right? So these sound like some pretty awful things, right? So, and we'll get to... Psalm 51, where David makes it very clear that he didn't lose his salvation. And I would say to you that a lot of the Psalms, all of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That God's inspiring these men what to write. And so in Psalm 51, when he says, and we'll get to it, return to me the joy of your salvation, Lord. He never lost his salvation, right? Salvation doesn't come and go based off of our merit. It's based off of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And that work is finished, right? So when we believe in that, when we believe in that finished work, we are saved, okay? It's not based off of anything that we do other than our faith in him. But our actions, our lives, what we do after that doesn't affect our salvation. His salvation was secured and he did some pretty awful things. Does it sound like some pretty awful things to do? Yes. So... We'll keep reading chapter 12, and God's going to explain some more things. Because there is a difference between willfully sinning and what was, what do we read in Hebrews? 
the sins that they committed in ignorance, that the priests made sacrifice for the sins they committed in ignorance. Well, there's a big difference between willfully sinning and the sins that we commit in ignorance, right? So do we ever sin, and maybe it's not in complete ignorance, but we lose our temper or we uh, try to do things under our own strength and not trust in God or things of that nature, right? We don't go to him first always with all the decisions in our lives. That we just different things that maybe we do in ignorance or unintentional. But then there's things like what David did. David thought this out. And I would say to you, we'll read in the Psalms too, that David was filled with the Holy Spirit. So I would say to you that while David was doing this, while he saw Bathsheba on the roof, or while he called for her, the whole time the Holy Spirit is convicting him, don't do this, this is sin, don't do this, this is sin. And David is willfully doing it, knowing that what he's doing is wrong. So there's a big difference between that and, and this uh, unintentional sins, or the sins we commit in ignorance, or things to that effect. Make sense so far? Does that make sense? Okay. So 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David a story. So again, Jesus told a lot of parables. This is kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail. Jesus told a lot of parables. And here God wants to prove a point to David. He wants to teach David kind of a lesson or give him a message. And how does God do it? Through a story. Why does God use stories? Because stories oftentimes speak to us right where we're at. Stories can, um, when we look deeper into the meaning of the story, we can have a deeper understanding of who God is. And that's what you're going to see here. So, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. Well, that doesn't sound very good at all, huh? This poor man, all he really owns is this one little lamb, and he loved this lamb, he'd eat from his table, drink from his cup, he'd hold it in his arms like he would his baby daughter. This lamb went everywhere with him. And here this other man comes and kills this man's lamb to feed his guests. That doesn't sound very good at all, does it? What does that make you think of? And get you fired up? Like, oh, somebody needs to teach that rich man a lesson, right? Okay, we'll see what happens. So David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. That part's an exaggeration. I don't find that anywhere in the law that that man deserves to die. But what I do find is what David says next. And I find it in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for not having pity. So that's what he was supposed to do. According to the law, if you were to steal a, a, a sheep and you were to kill it or do something else with it, 
and you were to repay that with four more sheep. So that part is true. The part where he's put to death, David got a little carried away there. He should have been. You think it was that bad? Ooh. Another reason why God tells us, teaches lessons in the form of parables or stories. So, then Nathan said to David, so David wants, says this man should die, right? Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. So God's saying, David, I've given you everything. I've given you the kingdoms. I've given you the power, the authority, the riches. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? You have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and stole his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. He will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. So right away, David confesses that he had sinned, and what does God do? He forgives him right away, right? And you won't die for this sin. So while David thought that the man should be put to death, God has mercy, right? And makes it clear that you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. <clears throat> I know, we'll get to that. So after Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's, David and Uriah's wife. So here the Bible doesn't even call her Bathsheba. He's, the Bible's still calling her Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason when the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. I think that's important. David went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. 
But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. Right? So David's pleading and praying with the Lord to let the child live. But David's life is in a life where he can come into the presence of God. Do you think that, that David's actions would have hindered his prayers? And I would say to you, yes. Right? So David's pleading with God to let the child live. But then here in verse 23, But why should I fast when the child is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. So what is David saying? I would say to you, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is saying that that child is in heaven with God in paradise, and he's not coming back to me here on earth. But one day I will go to him. And I think that's important for two reasons. One, right here in the Bible, it makes it very clear that when children die, where do they go? Heaven with God, right? But we don't read that this baby, this eight-day-old baby, or seven-day-old baby ever confessed his belief in Jesus, right? So, when children die, where do they go? Right here in the Bible, it makes it pretty clear that they go to heaven. And it also makes it pretty clear that David will go to him again. Again, speaking to salvation. Even though David's done all these awful things, he's still saved. He never lost his salvation, that he will go to him again. He will see him one day, right? So, well, it sounds harsh that, that God caused this illness or allowed this illness to come into this child's life, is it really harsh for the child? No, because the child is in paradise. You think about all the things that happen here on this earth, and really, there's not a whole, yeah, there's not a whole lot of good. If I had a choice to live here on earth for all of eternity, or live in paradise with God, I think I would choose paradise with God and skip this if I could, right? Does that make sense? Maybe. Mm-hmm. So so for the child, it's in paradise for all of eternity with God. You got to skip all the hard things that we go through here on earth, right? So not too bad for the child. But for David, that's a pretty severe punishment. And for Bathsheba. And some people say, oh, well, she was forced to. Well, I don't know. We won't get too far into that. I think if she was forced to, the Bible would have called it rape. But I don't see that in here. So I would say that's two willing parties that had an affair and had a child, and they both lost a child. And that's a pretty severe consequence. But God takes sin pretty seriously too, and there are severe consequences. So when we willingly step out in sin, as believers, there are consequences for those actions. Now, I would point out too, that David's consequences came right away, not years later. Now, some of them had lingering effects, yes. But God made it very clear that these were the consequences and they were laid out right away. And then God forgave him, right? Right away as well. So while there are consequences for our sins, they're not always, you know, God's waiting for 20 years and then going to punish us. Most of the time what I read is that God punishes right away and then moves on, forgives, and never brings it up again, right? So I think that's important to understand too. It's not waiting for God to to punish us for all these things that we've done in our past. No, he's going to punish us right away. And then we move on from that. He moves on from it. He never brings it up again. So 
we'll finish off this this section. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word to Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jebediah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. So here we read that they had another son, Solomon. And the interesting part of this is that God could oftentimes use what was meant for evil, and this was meant for evil, and turn it into something good. So through David and Bathsheba, and then through their son Solomon, and if we continue to follow the family tree or the family line, who comes out of that? Jesus. So God chose to bring his son into the world through this family line, and this family line is anything but perfect, right? This family line is a mess. Do you know of any other families that are a mess? I could think of a few. So God can do work in a mess with messy families. I take that out of this too. So, we will go to Psalm 23. So this psalm was written early on in David's life, I would say before this um, event, this affair with Bathsheba and the murdering of her husband. So Psalm 23. This is probably a psalm that if you don't have it highlighted in your Bible, you should have it highlighted in your Bible. So the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I'd say to you, this is the most important part of this song, this last part. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So when we die, when we believe in Jesus and we die, where do we live forever? In the presence of God, in paradise with him. The thief on the cross, what did Jesus promise him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, here at the end of Psalm 23, David makes it very clear. I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So I can tell you, there's no doubt in my mind that when I die, I will be in heaven. That I believe in Jesus and that I have that saving faith. And that saving faith guarantees me paradise with him forever. Right? And I would say to you, David had that same faith. And that all of Psalm 23 is a great psalm to read. It's a great psalm to know. But... I'd say to you the most important part of it is that last sentence, that he will live in the house of the Lord forever, that he is saved, no doubt about it. So, and I would say to you that he wrote that early on in his life. David did go through many challenges 
the King Saul, who was the king before David, King Saul was the first king of Israel, um, tried to kill David many times because David, Saul knew that David was going to be the next king, and he didn't want that. Saul was, became very power-hungry and greedy. Um, and um, So David spent a lot of his life running away from Saul, hiding. Um, spent a lot of his life um, with his life literally being threatened. But God always protected him. So, the next psalm I want to look at is Psalm 51. So, this psalm, I would say to you, is written after David um, has his, after Nathan the prophet confronts David. David goes and writes this psalm. David is a a songwriter, and many of the psalms are songs that were sung back then. Um, so one of the ways that David would worship is he would worship God in song. And this, he's writing a song here. So this was after he has his affair with Bathsheba. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Plural. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. And I would say to you that that is David's conscience. But we read in Hebrews that our consciences can be cleansed as well. Right, And how do we do that when we're struggling with that? We ask God to help us. And we don't just ask him once, but we ask him over and over and over again until we have that clear conscience and that God will clear, cleanse our consciences as well. So here we'll continue on Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So I have a note in my Bible, this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And I think that's important. But here we understand that the Holy Spirit was in David. And so that I would say to you, absolutely, was this willfully sinning. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. The Holy Spirit was convicting of it the entire time. And he stifled the Holy Spirit. He said, no, you're wrong. I'm going to do this. And that's always, always a sinful thing to do. So, restore to me, this is the important part, so pay attention to this one, Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. So he doesn't say to me, restore to me salvation. He never lost it, but he did lose his joy in salvation. Can you have joy in God and the things that he's doing and looking forward to eternity with him when you're living eyeballs deep in sin? And I would say to you, no, David didn't. And I don't think anyone else can either. 
Verse 13, Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. I think that's important. God will not reject a repentant and broken heart, right? Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices offered in the right spirit. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. So what he's saying is restore Jerusalem, right? Bring us back to you, restore its walls. Then when we offer sacrifices, it'll be pleasing to you. But that's not what God is after. God's not after sacrifices. God is after our hearts. And David's heart at this moment in his life was far from God, and he's returning to God. He's asking for that fellowship with God again. He wants to come into that presence of God, into that inner sanctuary, what we have access to now that he didn't have. And you can't have that when you're living in willful sin. Does that make sense? So what is David all throughout the Psalm 51? He feels a separation from God. He's worried that God is is not um, with him anymore. And it's because he's willfully in sin. So now let's go back to Hebrews. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at a few places in Hebrews that talks about this. So there's a difference, I think, that we've established between salvation and being in the presence of God, enjoying the, the, the fruits of God's labor, enjoying the promises of God, enjoying our presence and fellowship with God. So there's a difference between salvation and that. And when we willfully sin, we don't have that presence of, we're not in that presence of God. We don't have that fellowship with him because God can't be associated with sin. God can't be a part of sin. God is holy, righteous, and pure. So when we choose to willfully sin and shackle ourselves to these sinful things, we can't come into his presence, right? God can't be a part of sin, right? It just doesn't work that way. He is holy and pure and set apart from sin. And so when we want to be in his presence, when we want to come into that inner sanctuary, we can't do it with willful sin in our life. We really can't even do it, we read, where we read in Hebrews, with ignorant sin in our life, right? So we should always ask God regularly, please forgive me for my sins. Call out the specific ones, the willful ones, and ask for forgiveness for the ones that we committed in ignorance. And then we're washed white as snow, as he said in Psalm 51. So... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. Dear friends, so this is the writer of the the book of Hebrews writing to what were believed to be Christians who came out of Judaism. We're thinking about going back into Judaism as a religion. Um, So he's speaking to them as Christians though. So dear friends, If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, and the truth is the truth about Jesus, who he was, he is the Messiah, that he died for our sins. There is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. 
There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refuses to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people. So God will judge his own people. But God makes it very clear that when we receive Jesus into our life, we have this saving faith, but we willfully walk back into sins, that the punishment for that is great. And I would say to you, look at David's life. David was saved. He willfully walked back into sin, and the punishment that he received was pretty great, right? He lost the child that they had, um, but then his house was also in turmoil for the rest of his life. And there were lots of other things that happened um, as a result of that. So, right here in Hebrews chapter 10, God makes it very clear that we're not to do that. Don't take it lightly. So we receive Jesus, we believe in him, we have the saving faith, we know the truth, but then we're willfully willing to walk back into sin. God doesn't take that lightly. God takes that very seriously. And he gives us a very stern warning here. Does that make sense? But it's not a stern warning that we're not saved. You know, that very last sentence that we just read, the Lord will judge his own people. I think it's very important. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So Jesus understands everything we go through, right? All the temptations, all the testings, all the things that we struggle with because he was tempted and tested with all the same things, yet he did not sin. So we can come boldly into that throne room of God. We can come boldly into those promises that he will help us, right? There will there in the presence of God we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So what is Jesus promising to do for us? The Bible is filled with many promises of God, but he's promising to help us when we need it most, right? So do we need it when we need help? Uh, we're struggling with anger or we're struggling with lust or we're struggling with covetousness or whatever it is, what can we do? We can come to God and he will help us, right? We're struggling with a clear conscience. We're struggling with, maybe it's forgiving ourselves, right? How can, how can we handle that? We can go to God and there we'll receive his mercy and we'll find his grace and he will always help us. Let's go a little bit further back to Hebrews chapter two. 
So Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 16. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So when we are struggling, where can we go? Every single time we can go to Jesus. We should go to Jesus first and he will help us every single time. And that's what's coming into the presence of God, right? We can come to this presence of God. We can be in fellowship with him. We can be made white as snow and he will help us, right? Did we do anything to, to deserve this help, to deserve this salvation? No, we did nothing to deserve it or earn it. But when we walk with him, we can receive all of those promises, all of those guarantees, all of those things that God tells us. And this is one, we've, a couple of places here we've seen Part of coming into the presence of God or that throne room of God is having that fellowship with Jesus, that abiding with him. I would say to you that that takes place every day in our prayer life, in our time of reading. Many times God speaks to me as I'm just reading through his word. I just have a, a set schedule that I, I read off of. I, I printed off a thing from Blue Letter Bible. This is kind of like a reading, daily reading plan. And it's amazing how I come across that daily reading plan and it speaks to exactly what I went through the day before or what I'm about to go through that day. So that's a lot of what coming to the presence of God is. Spending time in fellowship with him, abiding with Jesus, remaining with him in prayer, in his word, in a life that reflects him. So a couple of other places we'll go to and we'll finish up our study today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the next one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So how are we made right with God? How can we come to this presence of God? Because of the work Jesus did on the cross. Because he made Jesus an offering for our sin. Not for Jesus' sin because he had no sin, but an offering for ours. And because of that, we can be made right with God. We can come into his presence. So that one you should definitely have highlighted. So then a couple of last places. We kind of went over these promises a few weeks ago. But I want to go over a couple of them again. The first one's in Joshua chapter 1. So Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. So Joshua is the, the leader of Israel. Moses, we all know Moses and the Egyptians. Moses crossing the Red Sea. Moses wandering in the wilderness with the Egyptian or with the Israelites. Um, so at the end of Moses' life, 
the next leader of Israel is Joshua. Um, and Joshua is, is not a perfect man, but he's another man um, that has a heart for God and a heart for trusting in God and a heart for worshiping God. So right here in the beginning of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. This is God's instructions to Joshua and to the people. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night, so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. So here we have, study this book of instruction continually. I'd say to you that that's the Bible. That while that may have been the Old Testament for Joshua and for the Israelites, for us it's the whole Bible. Study this Bible continually, meditate on it day and night. Be sure to obey what's written in it. And only then will you prosper in all that you do. And this is God's command. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid and discouraged. For the Lord is God is with us wherever we go. So that is a great promise from God. The next promise I want to look at is in Philippians chapter 4. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. So Philippians 4, verse 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me do. Then the God of peace will be with you. So the God we serve is known as the God of peace. And when we fix our, th- our thoughts and our lives on what is holy, right, and pure, the things that line up with God's word, that we put those thoughts and those things into practice, into action in our life, that we will receive the, the God of peace will be with us. That God's peace, and God's peace is the ability to go through the chaos but go through it with peace, and that can only come through God. So the next place that we'll go is a little bit further down in Philippians 4. We'll go to verse 18. So Philippians 4, verse 18. At the moment, I have all I need. So this is Paul writing to the Philippians. He's telling them, at the moment, he has all he needs. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am graciously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus, they are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his rich, from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all the glory to God, our Father, forever and ever. Amen. So everything we have, it's all because of Jesus. Everything we could ask for, everything we've been supplied with, it's all because of Jesus. The work that Jesus has done on the cross, it's all because of him. 
So, one last place we'll go as we close out is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. So these are Jesus' words. This is Jesus speaking to us, right? And I think all of the Bible is God's word. It's the word of God. It was also, we learned in the Gospel of John, is Jesus. The word was with God. The word is God, right? So, but I always think it's very important when it's Jesus' word speaking. So this is Jesus coming directly from God's mouth. So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But you, but your heavenly Father, already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. But verse 33 is very important. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So if your first thought there when we read through these last few areas was that um, it's a, a prosperity thing or he'll supply us with material things, Well, yes, I think that's a component to it, but I'd say more of what he's saying here, when we seek the kingdom of God and we ask him for what we need and he'll give it to us, I think of things like wisdom, faith, patience, endurance, peace, comfort, a clear conscience. When we seek the kingdom of God above all else, he supplies us with those things too, when we ask for him. When we can ask for Faith and wisdom, patience, endurance, peace, all the fruits of the Spirit, right? In Galatians, we read about the fruits of the Spirit. We could ask for all of those, and he will give those to us, right? So I don't think it's just a monetary, material thing that we read about here in Matthew or in Philippians, but it's a spiritual attributes thing. It's a clear conscience. It's living a life of peace being comforted by God when we go through challenging times, but he never leaves us. He never abandons us. We have access to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All we have to do is believe in him, be saved, and then come into his presence regularly, right? Not just in case of emergencies, but regularly. Our lives get so much better when we go to him first for everything and not after the fire's already started. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Any questions? No? Well, this study came out of a great question from last week. So, oh, yeah. I, I have a comment. Okay. Well, you, keep, you say again, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with anything that's been said, and I don't, whatever the question was last week. But I will say, you say God punishes right away. I don't believe that happens either because it doesn't. There's people that have done some pretty <clears throat> crazy things that you never. I don't think you see. You see. You see. I don't see being punished. Well, believers. 
So there's a difference between believers. But I don't... Okay. Well, but we have to be careful because you don't know a person's heart. So people may act like believers, may speak all the right words, but there's, I think we'll be surprised when we get to heaven. There'll be a lot of people that went to church or claim to be Christians that aren't going to be in heaven with us. So I, but I think for believers, I think God punishes. And I don't think, I think he punishes quickly. I guess the point of making that comment was that don't live your life. I did something 20, 30, 40 years ago and I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop or I'm waiting for God to punish me or I've had something bad in my life. It must be because of the sins in my past. I don't see God as doing that. Does that make sense? That was the, the point I was trying to make there. I don't see God as doing that. Now, look at David's life where God punished him right away, right? Where he was convicted, um, his punishment, God made it very clear what would happen. Now, the effects of that punishment were long-lasting, and that lasted probably throughout the rest of David's life. And that's one of the, the big things with sin, is if after you become a believer and you willfully walk in sin, there are some lasting effects that that can have. And those sins, those choices we make, can absolutely affect the rest of our lives. Yes, it's a big deal, and we want to stay very far from it. God doesn't keep us from sin or lead us away from sin because we're going to miss out on something. He keeps us from sin because he's protecting us. So, so yes, those things were long-lasting, but I does, it's difficult. You don't want to confuse that with, you know, I did something 30, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Oh, and God's still mad at me. No, no, God forgave. And when he forgives, he removes it from your record. There's punishments that are delivered, and sometimes those have lasting effects. But it's not that God's still mad at you, or God's continuing to punish you. The punishment took place and may have had a lasting effect in David's life, but it happened quickly. So, but this is for believers. There's unbelievers where their punishment and judgment won't come until, until the end of their life. Right? There is a difference there. <clears throat> but for believers, and that's what this is talking about. This is believers who willfully sin, be careful. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 there was talking about. So, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Kind of? Mm-hmm. All right. Any other questions? Do you have any questions? No? None? Should we pray? Mm-hmm. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn about your word, your will, your ways, um, and just how you interact with us, how you love us, how you loved us so much that you sent your son to willingly die on the cross for our sins, not for his, but for our sins. You loved us that much and that you're willing to take away those sins so we can have fellowship with you, that we can come to you with everything that we have, our needs, our desires, um, the things we need help with. We can come to you with our praise. I'm thankful for that. I just ask that you would give us joyful hearts this week, that you would help us to be a light and a witness to you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.